Good morning. Morning. Have you ever heard a story that's kind of funny and kind of sad at the same time? My wife told me one of these recently, uh, something that happened to her when she was in second grade. She had a friend, and uh, this friend that she got to know, a little second grade girl, invited her to come over to this little girl's house. And she came, and she said when she got to the house, it was the largest house that she'd ever been in. Uh, the father of this little girl was a doctor, and apparently they were quite wealthy. Well, they took my wife out for a pizza dinner that night, and when they were at the restaurant, my wife uh, started eating her pizza, and soon afterwards, she felt somebody kicking her in the leg underneath the table, and it was this little girl. And the little girl kept looking at my wife and kind of eyeing her silverware, and my wife couldn't figure out what was going on until after dinner, what she realized was that in that family, you do not eat pizza with your hands. And the next day at school, when she arrived, this little girl, her friend, would not speak to her. And there was a rumor that was going around the school that Katie Criswell eats like a barbarian. <laughs> and she was really embarrassed. She still does it to this day, honestly. But you know, the, the passage that we're going to look at is another uh, dinner party that should have been a very awkward one, but it wasn't. Uh, Jesus was having dinner with some people that many, many people in that culture viewed to be like barbarians, but to Jesus they weren't. And I'm going to invite John to come up and read the passage for us this morning.
little belt clip on my mic fell off this morning, so please forgive me. I want to set the scene for it this way. Uh, As this passage opens, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and as was often the case with him, crowds of people were coming to him to be with him and to hear from him, and he was teaching people. And as he was kind of going and teaching, he came across a man whose name was Levi who was sitting at the tax booth right near the water. And Levi's job as a tax collector was probably to collect the tolls of merchants and other travelers and farmers who were carrying their goods from place to place. They would stop at his booth, he would charge them, and they would move on. And there's really only one thing that you need to know about Levi, and that is he was despised. Now, in our day, we're not crazy about tax collectors either, especially at this time of year, right? If you are here and you work for the IRS, there's a good chance nobody knows because you're not going to tell them. But in that culture, it was a little bit worse. Uh, the, the, the feelings that people had towards tax collectors were, were much deeper than they are today in our culture. The first reason was because in that day, tax collectors tended to skim off the top. They were known universally as being dishonest. And most tax collectors were very wealthy because they took the taxes that were owed and a little bit extra for themselves. But they were despised even worse for one particular reason, and that is that tax collectors in Israel at that time were collecting taxes for the wrong government. Israel was under the rule of the Roman government, and so if you gave taxes to a tax collector, it was not going to benefit you and your community, it was going to Rome. And in that sense, tax collectors were considered traitors. Uh, Imagine if China invaded and occupied the United States, and your next-door neighbor collected taxes for China, sent your money to China, and then took money off the top, got rich, moved out of your neighborhood into another neighborhood that was much nicer. Tax collectors were despised. And so in that day, if you saw a tax collector, you would head another direction. What's interesting about Jesus is he does not do that. Jesus goes right to this man, Levi, which was odd. Odder still is what Jesus says to him. Two words. Jesus says, Levi, follow me. Now, it's possible that when Jesus said, follow me, he he could have meant two things. The first thing he could have meant to Levi was similar to what he said to his other disciples when, when he said to them, follow me. He could have been saying to Levi, I want you to drop everything. I want you to drop your life as a tax collector and become my disciple. Follow me. Or Jesus could have been saying, follow me, like Hey, come here for a minute. No, literally, follow me. I want you to come with me. Either way, whichever it was, Levi gets up, he leaves his tax booth, and Jesus and Levi go to Levi's house where Levi throws for Jesus a party. He has a big dinner. Levi invites all of his friends, and these friends would have been people who were just like Levi, other tax collectors. Levi would have only been able to be friends with people who were in that position in life. And so you've got Jesus and Levi and all of Levi's tax collector friends there for this dinner. And in that time, as you see in the passage, when they did a dinner, it it was very comfortable, They would recline at the table and people would pull up maybe a couch or some pillows or a fluffy rug. Uh, It's just sort of interesting. In in our culture, that's not what we do. 
In fact, can you think of any furniture that's less comfortable than dining room furniture? In their culture, you'd have dinner, they'd invite people over and say, just relax, make yourself, un- make yourself comfortable. When we have company over, we say to people, here, have a seat in the most uncomfortable chair in the house. You're welcome. And so they're relaxing and, and having a dinner, and it sounds like probably a good time, when who should show up but the scribes and the Pharisees? Okay, these were the very religious people of that day. And, and they come to this party, and it had to have been awkward however it happened. Okay, this is like a party full of drug dealers with the Son of God, and the Supreme Court justices show up or something like that. And when the scribes and the Pharisees arrive at this party, what they don't say is, hello, right? Or thanks for having us, or what are you guys having? Do you mind if we join you? What they do is they slide over to some of Jesus' disciples and they say this, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you know, the Pharisees and the scribes asked it obviously in kind of a wrong way, but it is a very good question, isn't it? If this is Jesus, the Son of God, who created and sustained all things in the universe, if this is the one who stepped out of heaven to come to earth, and the one who could be doing anything he wants with any people he wants, why is he there with them at this party? Why is he hanging out with Levi and all of his friends? And Jesus either overhears the question or he just knows that they asked it and he answers their question by using these words, such incredibly important words. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? Those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. I came not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Now, I think most of us understand what Jesus meant by this, but it's important to know that to the Pharisees, there were two categories of people. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people of that day, they saw people in black and white, two categories. There are righteous people and there are unrighteous people. And when it came to how they viewed sin, the Pharisees had a very simplistic way of seeing things. Their big idea was this. Look, if you're an unrighteous people, what you ought to do is start acting like a righteous person, like us. You see, what the Pharisees thought is they thought of sin as being something that could be prevented, that any person can prevent sin. And what you ought to do is you ought to study the Bible, realize what it is that's right and wrong, and do the things that are right, and try to create boundaries around all of the things that are wrong. And if you do something that's wrong, just figure out a way not to do it and try harder and figure it out. And with that view, the the Pharisees tended to be people who did not have a lot of compassion for the unrighteous, but felt like, They ought to just be able to become righteous. And they also had this view that kind of a guilt by association view. In other words, if you spend time with people who are not righteous, then what happens is they'll rub off on you and pollute you, and you will begin to become an unrighteous person too. Their sin rubs off on 
you. Well, Jesus had a very different view of sin. Jesus' view of sin was that sin cannot be prevented. He didn't see sin as just being an issue of behavior, but he saw it as being an issue that is deep within the core of the human heart. He saw sin as being a bigger problem than just something that we can defend against with a few boundaries or overcome on our own. Jesus' view was that there is no defense that any person can put up in their life that would be enough because sin is deeper and it's more manipulative and difficult and nuanced. And just trying to put a few behaviors into your life will not work. Jesus' view of sin was this, that we need God to help. I remember a, a few years ago, I think I've shared this before here, but a woman called me and she was looking for a youth group for her son. And she wondered if our youth group might be a good youth group for her son to come to. And, and I said, well, tell me a little bit about your son. And she said, my son is the most wonderful kid in the world. She said, he doesn't use drugs. Uh, he's not even into dating. He doesn't have a lot of time for girls. The reason is because he's so busy studying his Bible. Uh, he, he leads a Bible study at school, and his behavior is perfect. He loves his brother and, and sister. He's like the most ideal Christian in the entire world, and he would be such a wonderful gift to your youth group. And I literally, she just went on and on and on for like 10 minutes. And at the end of this conversation, I literally wanted to throw up. (laughs) And I thought this kid would be a horrible fit for our youth group. Because the kids who are in our youth group have real problems and struggles and issues. We're just going to mess this kid up. He's too perfect. (laughs) But the thing about that kid is he really, I don't know why he would come to a youth group. He's already got it all together. He's already got things figured out. And the thing that you know and and I know is this, that there is nobody who's got it all together. You and I know that there are things in that kid's life that may not show up externally but are, are still there. Maybe he doesn't have much compassion for other people. Maybe he's not a very patient person. Maybe he's a very judgmental person. I I don't know. But Jesus' view of sin is nobody escapes it. Nobody figures out a way to to build boundaries around it. Everybody struggles with something. You know what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7? This is amazing. The Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, he said about his life, I want so badly to do the right thing. But I find I keep doing the wrong thing. And I don't understand it because I have the desire in my life to do what's right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. And Paul saw sin almost like a a cancer to which we do not have the cure. And what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees was this. He was saying, I have come not to judge sinners, but I've come like a doctor who really wants to help. In this passage, what you see is that Jesus has incredible compassion and love for people who are struggling in their sin. And when you put it up against the Pharisees' lack of compassion, it's stunning. 
the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, just before he said what I just said, he, he says this. Excuse me, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You might know this passage. I think it's one of the most important ones in the whole New Testament. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This tells us two things that are incredibly important. The first is, it's God's solution to sin. The Pharisee says, the solution is just defend against it. Build some boundaries and don't cross them. Jesus' solution was, I come, I die for you. You don't defend against sin. I go on the offensive against sin for you. Jesus is like the general of the army and a grenade is thrown into the room and he dives on top of it. And so the Bible would teach that that Jesus died in our place for our sin. The punishment we deserve, he took on himself. That's his solution to sin. He does it, we can't. But the second thing about this passage that's so important is this. It says that God shows his love for us while we are still sinners. In other words, God loves people stuck in sin. God loves us before we have our act together, not afterwards. God loves us first. You see, to Jesus, there is no distinction between sinners and non-sinners. There's only sinners who know that they're sinners and there's sinners who think that they aren't. And he says, if you don't realize that you're sick, you will never come to me for help. You see, to, to Jesus, there's, there's no such thing as barbarians and non-barbarians. Everyone's a barbarian. And to everyone, he offers forgiveness to us through the cross. We all are offered the cure. And what Jesus shows Levi and does for Levi is he, he sees through all these external categories that the Pharisees and the scribes have, and Jesus sees a person who's underneath. Jesus sees Levi not as a tax collector, but as a human soul who is loved by God. And when Jesus goes to his house and he sits down and he's a part of this party, he eats dinner with them, what he does is he associates with them and he identifies with them and he shows that he cares. I'm here to help, not to judge. Now, How do we apply this together as a church? What does this passage say to all of us? I think there's a lot of things, but I'm just going to choose one this morning. Here's the big idea. Jesus identifies and associates with every person. And if he felt free to do that, we can feel free to do that too. Jesus identifies and associates with everyone. And if he can do it, we can do it too. Uh, There was a woman who called our church a couple of years ago, and um, I happened to talk to her on the phone. She was an incredibly nice woman. And she said to me, um, she said, I was wondering if, if you could give me a little bit of information about your church. She said, in fact, I have a specific question for you, but I think I should give you a little bit of background first. She said, I have a friend who's been to your church before, and they said, it's a great church, but here's my situation. She says, my situation is I'm in a relationship with another woman, 
uh, we've been in this relationship for six or seven years. I don't remember what it was. She said, she's my partner, and uh, we're raising children together. We've been raising them for some time. I'd really like to get them into a good youth group, and I wondered if, if our family would be welcomed at your church. Now, how do we answer that question? How do we answer that? How does this passage apply to a question like that? Well, I, I think if we apply what Jesus did here, then our answer to that question, without blinking, without having to give it a lot of thought, uh, without hesitating at all, is, of course, of course you and your family would be welcome. Why? Because she's a person. Because she's a human soul. Because God deeply loves her and her family. And he doesn't say to her, you have to have it all together first. You've got to have it figured out. And this is a woman who needs to know that God loves her and needs to know the grace that, that Jesus offers to people. And if she cannot find it here in this place, where will she go? Where else will she find it? Now, when she comes here, is it possible that she's going to hear some things that she doesn't like? Yes. Is it different for any of you? No. Right? You come here with someone that you're struggling with, and the Bible says, forgive them, love your enemies. Do you want to hear that? No, you don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that either. But you see, what we believe here is that the grace of God, what he offers forgiveness, eternity with him to become his sons and daughters is, is better than anything we might ever give up. Are things maybe complicated for this woman in some ways? Possibly. Is she worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a story that was told by a, a guy. I'm not sure. I tried to research his background. I think he was a pastor or a or a professor, but his name was Thomas Long. And someone heard him talking once, and he told this little story, and they recorded it. And so I want to give it to you third hand. This is what the person wrote. Thomas Long tells of staying in a motel in a large city and finding a notice posted on the elevator door. Party tonight, room 210, 8 o'clock p.m. Everyone invited. He imagined the odd assortment of people who might show up, tired salesmen, bored vacationers, weary travelers, and the curious, all looking for a break in their individual tedium and a little festivity and not wanting to be left out of something exciting. But the sign was a hoax. It was a practical joke, and he thought it was too bad. For a brief moment, those of us staying at the hotel were tantalized by the possibility that there might be a party going on someplace to which we were all invited. A party where it didn't make much difference who we were when we walked in the door or what motivated us to come. A party we could come to out of boredom, loneliness, curiosity, responsibility, eagerness to be in fellowship, or simply out of a desire to come and see what was happening. A party where it didn't matter nearly as much what got us in the door as what would happen to us after we arrived. And in this passage, that's the kind of party that Jesus throws. And I think that that is 
what he has in mind for what his church would be like too. You know what some people say? Some people say, if we were to do that, if we were to just throw open the doors of the church, what would happen is the church would be filled with sinners. And the newsflash for them is exactly what you just said. We're already here. It's too late. You know, the, the, the greater fear is not that the church would be filled with sinners. It's that it would be filled with Pharisees. Because the church is meant to be a hospital for people who are sick. Now, how do we get the word out about that, right? There's a lot of people who are out there who, who, who don't realize that. They think of the church as a place for the healthy, the righteous, alone. I think one of the things that we do is the same thing that Jesus did. We invite them to come and see. That's what he did. He just gave Levi an invitation. Do you know why it is that most people do not attend churches statistically? They've done lots of studies on this. Statistically, people do not attend churches for the same reason that you do not attend the book club at the Milford Library. Anybody go to that book club? Nobody. The reason that you don't go to that book club is because nobody's ever invited you to that book club. You've never even thought about it. It's not on your radar. If somebody invited you to it, then you might decide you wanted to go or you didn't want to go, but there's a much greater possibility you're going to go to the book club if someone invites you. The same thing studies say is true for people with churches. Uh, there was a study of more than 50,000 people that was done over five years who, who were new people to churches, and they asked them, why did, they, why did you come? And 75% to 90% of the people said, I started attending the church because somebody invited me to be there. And what I've, what I've really found myself, I hope you've found this too, is that people actually really appreciate it when you invite them to church. As long as you're not saying to them something like, I'd like you to come to church because I think you really need it. <laughs> or this one, which is a little more si subtle, uh, because it could help you deal with some things in your life. Or one that is not so subtle because you need to change, right? Sometimes we can accidentally invite a person to church in that way. We would never say it, but that's what they get. But when you go to somebody and you say, listen, I go to this church and I really want you to be there too. I think the people at our church would really like you. And I think that you would really like them too. And it's really laid back. You come as you are. If you don't like it, I'm not going to bug you to ever come again. But we want you there. We'd love to have you there. We don't have it all together. But we, we think God loves us anyway. And, and we find a lot of hope in that and help in, in that. And uh, it's changing us. I, I think people sometimes appreciate an invitation like that. The thing that I'm realizing in my own life is that if people are going to feel wanted by me, I've got to really want them. If people are going to feel loved by me, I'm going to have to really love them. And our church, Grace Church, has got to be a church that does not just exist for us, but it exists for everyone 
And the moment that we lose that, we have lost everything. And what Jesus does is he associates and he invites and he welcomes all people from all places and and, and states in life. I think one thing that that we, we think about a lot, the leadership of the church, and I'm sure that many of you do too, is, is our church that kind of church? When a person comes to our church on a Sunday morning, what is their experience like? And I've realized for myself that I cannot answer that question. I've been coming to this church for since I was in third grade. And so is this church a friendly church? Yeah, they are to me. But what do I know? What you'd really have to do is you'd have to ask somebody who was here for the very first time or somebody who had just been, been coming for a few weeks, what was your experience like? What kind of welcome did you receive when you came? I know I can't answer that question, but I can tell you this. What I hear from people oftentimes is that we are an incredibly welcoming church. When, when a person becomes a, a member at our church, uh, one of the elders always meets with them and does an interview before they kind of sign on to be a member. And in the interview, we always try to get from them feedback that would really help us to become better, a better church. And so we ask them things like, what don't you like about grace? And please tell us what you really think. And we say, what do you like about grace? And when we say the question, what do you like about grace? The answer, in my experience, has always been the same. They always say the people. Almost every time, the people. I was talking to a person recently who said, you know, this church was probably not the one that our family was going to go to because my background was very different. And this woman said, but my kids went to the youth group and the people in this youth group loved them so much. And then there were other people who were in this church that loved me so much. And I realized, even though this was very different than the church I saw myself ending up at, that this is, this is the place. This is home. This is where I want to belong. And so I just really honestly wanted to stop for a second and say thank you. That, that what you do when you love people, what you do when you welcome people and answer their questions or find out about their life or, or give them a cup of coffee or whatever it is that it really matters and it really has a lot of value. I think in some ways this message is a little bit like preaching to the choir, except I know in my own life I need to be preached this message. I need to remember why it is that we're here and what we're doing and that when we show another person that we want them, hopefully what they realize and recognize is that God wants them too. Um, Just as I kind of wrap things up here, my wife and I are going to have a baby tomorrow at uh, 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> Thanks. Don't clap for me. I didn't do much. But um, you can clap for her. Um, my wife is really ready to have a baby. This, this one's been a little harder on her than our last one was. And so we're going to have a scheduled C-section tomorrow morning, which to me, I'm a planner. This is the way to go. <laughs> I don't know if she'll feel that way. But I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, all weekend, I've just felt, you know, kind of on edge in a good way. 
Um, partly just because I remember when my son, my 19-month-old son, was born last time. And I remember when they pulled him out of the womb, I was just like a lightning bolt in love with this kid. And it was a love that was outside of me. I, I didn't have that love. And then in a second, I did. And, and it was like my heart exploded and expanded. And with my son, Jack, as he's gotten a little bit older, that love that I got initially at that moment has not changed. I, I still have that same love. In fact, it's, it's probably deeper than it was. But along with that love, what I've realized as he's grown older is I also feel a sense of burden and responsibility. And there was one thing that happened to him that really increased the burden and responsibility that I feel about him. He learned something. He learned how to say no. <laughs> this happened a few months ago, and um, I didn't know children did this. But uh, it, caught me, it caught me kind of off guard. And what I, what I realized as a, as a parent, it just came sooner than I thought it would come. But what I've realized as a parent is I can do everything that I can to try to set an environment, right, a good environment for him, and I can try to do everything that I can to control his behavior, but I can't change his heart. I have no access over his heart. If he doesn't want to go to bed, I can make him go to bed, but I can't make him be okay with going to bed. He's still not going to want to do it. And what I realize is that that's going to grow. That's going to get harder and harder and harder. And over time, he might make decisions that I don't want him to make. You know, there might be a day where my son makes some really bad decisions. And my son's path in life might not be the path that I want him to take. And it's possible that he will grow up and he will leave the house, and he will make really bad decisions. And he will be a person who, in his life, will walk away from God and towards other people, and it might be the kind of people who will hurt him, and he will hurt them. And he might have a life that's kind of miserable and kind of hard. And if he does that, it's going to break my heart. But you know, when he's 40 years old, or 45, maybe he'll be living in some distant city, far away from me, and maybe he will think to himself, oh, I've kind of gone the wrong way, and i got to try a church. I've got to just go. And if he goes to a church on that day when he's 45 and his life is a mess, what kind of people do I want him to meet? What kind of experience do I want him to have at that church that day? I want him to have an experience like that passage. I want him to meet people who are, see churches, we're throwing a party. It's a grace party. We have the most wonderful news in all of the world, Jack. You don't have to have it all together. Because God is the one, the only one who can help. He's the only doctor who has the cure. And I hope that when he's there, there will be people there who wouldn't judge him. They wouldn't put him in a certain category, but they'd identify with him and associate with him and care about him and pursue him. And it wouldn't be overdone, but he'd just know there's, there's people here who really genuinely love me. And to those people, if that day ever comes, my son's just going to be another face in the crowd. It's just going to be another person who comes through the door of that church that nobody knows. But to me, someplace, he will be my son.
you will be my son. I think what I'm just trying to help me and you think about is this. Every person who walks through those doors matter. Every person who walks through those doors matter. Everyone is someone to someone. Everyone who comes through those doors is a son or a daughter or a wife or a husband or a friend or a sister or a brother. Everyone is someone to someone. And in this passage, what we see is this. It's even more important than that. Everyone is someone to Jesus. Everyone matters. Even this Levi guy that nobody wanted to be with. And my encouragement this morning is this. Let's be a church together where everyone, everyone, everyone matters to us too. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to me to think that uh, my daughter is going to take her first breath tomorrow, Lord willing. And we all did that too. There was all a day that we started out new. Every person begins life in this world just as a child. And we think about that, and it's so special that people would clap. A a new life, a a new unique individual. And I want to thank you that to you that does not change that you don't just see crowds of people, but you see individuals and you know their hearts and you know their backgrounds and you know their problems and you have compassion on them and love for them. Thank you that Jesus did not wait to die for those who were not sinners, that he didn't wait for us to have it all together and perfect our spiritual resumes, but that he died for for all people. And we pray that Um, you would help us to, to let the people in this world matter as much to us as they matter to you. We pray that we would be a place where every person would not just be welcome to come through the doors, but would be loved by us in a way that pictures love from you. And we thank you that you've loved us in that way and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.